Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Today we're being taped early, so though you may think it's live, we're actually on tape. This show was presented to you by Gastowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Adam Gaslowitz, and we're talking about how to anticipate and avoid issues during the administrative stage of an estate. And now it's time to introduce our guest this week. We're pleased to have with us today Ronnie Genser, president of Bereavement Navigators, and attorney Jeff Scroggin of Scroggin & Company. Before we start, I'd like to get each of you just to tell our audience a little bit about your uh, respective practices. So, Jeff, why don't we start with you? I'm a uh, estate uh, probate and tax attorney uh, in Roswell, Georgia. My office is in the uh, Harley Old Historic District. And I have a business called Bereavement Navigators. The concept is relatively new. I um, have two service offerings. One is I work with um, widows, widowers, and adult children after the death of a loved one on all the personal and practical things they encounter outside their professional service advisors. The other service offering is I work with people hopefully while we're healthy and a little bit younger um, to make sure that we don't have quite so many personal and practical things later on to have to deal with. And what we have done, uh, for those of our listeners who have been listening for a couple of months, we've kind of had a four-part series, starting with how families can talk to each other and how they can plan through each stage of planning. So we started with the young families and talked about early planning and thoughts that we might have in communication. Then we went as the family started to mature and children were born. And then we talked about as our parents or the first generation are aging and how now adult children, typically with adult grandchildren, are dealing with it. And really the topic today that we want to focus on is how do families address uh, estate planning and the next step right after a loved one has passed. And so, so Ronnie, let's start with you. I, I think one of the starting points really is to talk about the concept of how everyone grieves differently. So talk to us about what grieving is about. I'd be happy to do that. First of all, I want to tell the audience that I am a wi- an unexpected widow, as I call myself, so that they have some background and know where I'm coming from. My husband, um, Sandy Weinberg, um, died unexpectedly from uh, after having a heart attack, nine day- died nine days later, um, and it will be four years to the day that this show airs. Mm-hmm. So I want people to know um, what I'm talking about is real life experience and not um, theory. Um, and so I've sort of been there, done that, and continue to, to do that. Um, when your question about the grieving process, I want to say that everyone is different. Um, it depends for many things. It depends on the relationships we've had with our loved ones. It depends on the um, uh, how the death occurred, if it was unexpected, um, be it complications of a heart attack, be it suicide, be it... Uh, a long-term, a long-term illness like a dementia or some other things, so that um, uh, and just our own individual psychological psychological makeup. So um, there's uh, there's no one way to grieve. There's no right way to grieve. And as um, I clearly saw early on, when I um, attended a brief a bereavement support group for about 11 months after the death of my husband, it just runs the gamut. And so. Um, everybody's grieving is the correct way for them. 
So, so what do you find that most families are concerned about during this process, at least as, as the process begins? Um, of the grieving process? Of the grieving process. Um, I think that I think that probably the one of the things that resonates for me is people will say, "Will I ever stop crying?" You know, and when will I stop crying? As if there's a fixed date, you know, <laughs> kind of like your birth date or something. If there's a fixed date, and everybody grieves differently, and I even see that in my own life that there was a point at which, uh, yes, I stopped. You know, I'd cry every day for at some period during the day. I'd still have happy times occasionally. And that there were just waves of uh, grief coming and going. And then even you just would see over, uh, let's say, the last four years, different transition points. And every once in a while, some things come back to, you know, are very um, different, Um, especially during I'm Jewish. And during this holiday period, I would find myself grieving, you know, maybe a month before we call it the month of Elul, the month of preparation. And I kind of like, by the time the holidays came, I'd be like, I've been there, done that. And this year, totally, I was like cruising along saying, oh, yeah, I think I'm not grieving at all. And then all of a sudden, 10 days ago, oh, my God, you know, stress, lots of things going on at work and a fair amount of grief. Yeah. So it's, it just, it, you just never, and we say you never know when it's going to happen. Jeff, do you see a difference in, in when people are coming to you in the grieving process between people who have been expecting it and the suddenness? Is that something that's that's helpful or predictive, or is that still still always going to be unique? It's always unique, but someone that's had a parent, for example, that's had Alzheimer's. My father had Alzheimer's the last five years of life. We knew he was going, and the grieving went before he died, not when he died because he was long since gone by the time he finally mm-hmm. died. And I think, you know, one of the, the issues that is here is, you know, letting people have the time to grieve. Some people want to immediately jump into, you know, let's get all this stuff done immediately. And somebody else is going to say, well, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not ready to do that. I, I, I need my time. I need to, you know, deal with this inside. And because people are so unique in how they're grieving and dealing with this, You've got to be able to give them time, particularly the surviving spouse. I see very often the kids immediately, particularly kids from a second or third marriage, are pushing, say, hey, we got to get this done. we got to get, you know. And my thing with my clients is, no, you know, move at the pace that you can move at. Don't move at a pace that's artificially put on you. Um, from a legal perspective, there are very few things that have to be done right away. Exactly. Um, I think there is, there is a continual problem that here you've got this grieving process, and in the midst of the grieving is is abject confusion. What happens next? You know, and it's not just the the financial legal issues. It's you know, am I on the credit card? Can I continue to use the credit card? Uh, I'm not on the joint account. How do I get access to money that I may need? And there's all of this, and it exacerbate, exacerbates the conflicts that are there because the person just feels totally insecure. Where, you know, and particularly men, uh, particularly down <laughs> south, are really good about not really informing their wives about as much stuff as they should and not leaving behind enough information. Or sometimes when they do leave the information, we had a, a client died a couple of years ago and left a note that everything was on his laptop. Well, that <laughs> was great, but he didn't give anybody the passcode to the <laughs> laptop. Uh, turned out we, f- we found a high school kid that was president of the computer club, and he hacked the computer in about an hour. Oh, my son uh, could do it in about 15 seconds. <laughs> yeah, well, it made me much more insecure about my own laptop after that. Well, what you, one thing you said is, in, is, is very interesting, and, and I want to highlight. The more that you're able to talk and plan in advance, mm-hmm. 
to understand what's going to happen, the easier it is from the practical standpoint. But it's still difficult. Even if you know the accounts, they may not have been done right. Things might have changed. Ronnie, what are the questions people are coming to you and say, well, when are – I mean, let me ask it differently. How do you know who to ask that question to? You know, how do I get to the bank account? Yeah, how do I get Social Security started, or have I even thought about doing that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, who do you ask? I mean, obviously, that's what I do now. That's what I do now in the business, and and that's what we talk about are those issues. And in fact, I had an interesting um, uh, client um, uh, late winter um, who I had known um, a little bit, not close, close friend at that time, but um, she was originally from South. Talk about questions. She was originally um, from South Africa, had uh, grown up there, and. Um, lived there all her life, was planning to move to the United States. Um, Her husband got ill, died, and then later came to the United States. She married again here in the States some years later and became a widow a second time and knew me and called me and said, I want to hire you, whatever. And I said, okay, but why? You've been through this, you know, this is your second time down, sort of down the aisle. And she said to me, you have to remember the first time was in South Africa. I need to know the differences between issues in South Africa and here. And so um, so in that case, that's how she found out. We, we went through a list of things that, you know, she was used to there and what was here. And then if there was anything that she hadn't talked about that I thought that she should talk about, is um, consulted with her and, and provided that kind of information. So it's very different for everybody. That's obviously an unusual situation. Probably won't see too many of those. But, um, yeah, I think finding um, good help and um, resources and for people who I see who don't have resources, um, you know, have never had um, an estate attorney or a probate attorney, that's where I can come in and provide, you know, three choices and based on their situation, which would be good matches, and and let them go for for there. But I call it the stuff they didn't teach us in high school. You know, there was no class in, um, you know, end-of-life and post-end-of-life issues, so... Yeah. Well, I, I always wondered that when they do the, 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 when you have a baby and they teach you all about the birth first, process, right, right. I really wish they taught me about the first six months process. Yeah. The birth process seemed relatively straightforward right. to me. Um, what are the types of questions that are the issues that are really the uh, most important? And let's kind of talk about the surviving spouse and then the, the children, because they mm-hmm. really may be different issues. And let's right. start, Jeff, maybe with the children. Well, one of the single biggest sources of conflict that we find in families <clears throat> is personal property. Mom dies, and the kids all want that ring she had. Uh, and the daughter especially says, no, no, I'm the only daughter. I should get that. Um, those kinds of conflicts are really nasty. Um, I'll give you a classic case. We had a uh, family probably 15 years ago that uh, about 10 years before mom dies, son comes to mom and says, Mom, when you're gone, do you think maybe I could have the old grandfather clock that's been in the family for three generations? Sure, son, it's yours when I'm gone. Well, six months before she dies of cancer, daughter comes to her and says, Mom, that grandfather clock's always been kind of special. Do you think maybe, sure, it's yours when I'm gone? She dies. Son's wheeling the grandfather clock out the front door three days later. Sister shows up. They get in a fist fight in the front yard and break the grandfather clock. <laughs> They're still not talking. Um, and it wasn't that mom was trying to do anything. She just didn't remember that she had done it twice. 
um, a totally different example. We had a client or two clients um, were in the kitchen of mom's house trying to divide up the personal property. And they start shouting at each other about a yellow Tweety bird that sat in mom's kitchen for 50 years. And I'm literally going, guys, I'll buy one on eBay for a buck fifty, and I won't tell you which is the original. <laughs> Didn't work, but you know, it's it's there's so much emotional mm-hmm. um, uh, attachment to little things of personal property, much more so than the stocks and the bonds. Okay, so, so assuming that mom or dad didn't um, address that problem earlier, either by starting to give things away beforehand, which is a lot of times what we recommend, or by uh, labeling them or specifying uh, or gathering everybody together at one time and telling them, what, what do you do after the fact? How do you solve these problems or address them as they come up? What we try to do is set up a procedure that everybody agrees to in advance. Uh, my mother died uh, about two years ago. Um, I have some siblings that don't get along real well. And I went in and said, all right, here's the process. We're going to have everything that mom didn't have on our list, because I had her do a list beforehand, that you can bid on it. And, you know, if you want the washing machine, you put a sealed bid and put it on top of the washing machine. And then I would come in and look, and whichever bid was the largest, they got the washing machine. And that reduced concomitantly the amount of inheritance that that person would get. So you basically had the ability to say, all right, I want this. So some things, somebody said, no, I'm the only one that wants it, so I'm going to, you know, buy this thing for 10 bucks, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. It made it much simpler because you were in control of the situation. The other part that we do very often is we exclude in-laws from the process because very often you'll find a situation where sister-in-law comes in, she's looking at the table and saying, hey, let's get the table. And the brother-in-law, who never much, or brother who never much liked the sister-in-law, is going, who in the heck does she think she is to start, you know, pawing over mom and dad's stuff? Um, And so from that standpoint, it can be very, you know, uh, problematic. One other thing that I strongly recommend to people, we have had family members continually going in and taking personal property out of houses after someone dies without talking to anybody. And I'm assuming this happens like the day of the funeral. (laughs) Uh, I had an uncle whose uh, stepdaughter, when he was at the reception after the funeral, got into the house, used the security code she knew to get into the house, took all of her mother's personal property out of the house without even talking to him uh, that, that day, and all the personal property under the wheel went to him. Uh, it was done for safekeeping, though, right? Uh, <laughs> she denied she did it until he f- played the videotape of the camera that showed that she had gotten into the house. Um, so it, it's really problematic. And one of the things that I tell people, that particularly there's not family in town, um, we change the locks the day of the death if we can. Um, and when my mother died, I had a lot of family there. And the deal was, we're going to come back and deal with this in a couple of months. I'm locking the house up, and nobody but me is going to have a key. And that's what everybody agreed to, and it worked much better smoother than I would have otherwise anticipated. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Adam Gasowicz from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gasowicz Frankel. We're talking with Ronnie Gensler and Jeff Scroggin about how to anticipate and avoid issues during the administration stage of an estate. Now, Jeff, you were talking, but one of the big issues for adult children is personal property. And I implied or, or, or got the feeling that it is often very early on that this problem comes up. And I want to come back to the timing, but I want to switch to Ronnie. For the surviving spouse, what is typically the first thing that they're worried about? Um, I'm going to talk about something that they probably don't mention at all with what I call their professional service advisors. And by professional service advisors, I mean the estate attorney, probate attorney, financial advisor, accountant, insurance person. But the thing that was the number one topic um, 
constantly at bereavement support group, and that's who will take care of me health-wise. That's such an underlying um, issue that um, that's really never... I don't even hear it. Dis- I mean, I don't hear it in my practice discussed. I don't hear attorneys or financial advisors talking about it. But on a real gut, intimate level, which you get in a um, support group, that's probably the the key issue. And it could be after a long a long illness like um, cancer, dementia, things like that, because of the relationship between the two, between the two people. You know, somebody to take you to the hospital. You have a procedure you know, that you can't drive home from um, uh, from the doctor's office or the hospital or whatever, you know, who's who can I rely on? Obviously, hopefully we all have friends we can call, but that means taking having the courage to ask those questions and to ask someone to do that for you. And um, And it also could be not even health stuff, but it could be as simple as, I have to have my car fixed, and who's going to take me to, who's going to, you know, drop it off and pick me up without it being a big deal, you know? One of the things I found is the um, AAA car care down by me uh, has car service. I said, it's like having a husband, and you don't have to ask him. <laughs> so, um, but the health issue of who will be, there, basically, who will be there for me is probably the number one unsaid issue. Are, yeah. are ministers and rabbis and Omans, are they talking to the family, uh, to the surviving, about the kind of the issues that may come up, come up, or is this something that we're not seeing? I th- I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, I have a good relationship with the rabbis at our synagogue, but I don't think that I've talked to them about any of these kinds of kinds of things. I mean, I know that I can go to them f- if I wanted to, but I, for me personally, so I don't know, and I haven't had clients who have said what they've done. Yeah. I generally don't see that discussion going on. It's more, you know, we're going to try to get you through this grief, but not long-term what's going to happen. And, yeah. and there's a related corollary to what Ronnie's talking about. Many elderly do not want to leave their house. Yeah. And they're now, for the first time, dealing with the issue of, well, it's just going to be me. My kids all live out of town. How's that going to work? And should, you know, and then the kids are all nervous that mom might fall, break her hip, not be able to do anything. And so, you know, there's a lot of questions that have to start evolving. Well, and this is the time when, when, when the kids start saying to the surviving parent, you know, maybe it's time for you to move somewhere else. Right. And, and I want to interject something too from a, a, a widow's perspective, and assuming that maybe the parents are no longer alive. So now you're sort of the matriarch or patriarch here. And then I'm reading about a new term called. Um, uh, a boomer offense, um, where, you know, in essence, we're baby boomers because we're not that old, and that we've really become or- orphans. We, you know, we don't use the term anymore, matriarchs and patriarchs of our fa- of our family trees, but we are. So, who kind of just like an orphan who takes care of us? Yeah. Well, it, it, there's a related uh, demographic that's that's very interesting, called orphaned fathers. Um, and these are fathers who have gone through multiple marriages, and no one within the family group is willing to take care of them. Yeah. They, they can't get them as medical directives. They can't get them on powers of attorney. And we see it probably at least a couple times a year now. Um, and the studies that are out there show that the stepchildren are more willing to take care of their stepmother than in many cases their own father who you know has been highly dysfunctional. We, we were talking, and, 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 and one of the issues that, that sounds, seems to me very important is most of our children 
in, in, in today's society don't live in the same city. We may have one or we may have another. And so the kids that come in, the adult children who come in for the funeral, mm-hmm. want to get things done. And I often hear a platitude mm-hmm. to the surviving spouse, don't worry, I'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. And, and yet that isn't satisfying okay. to the parent because they know from history that they're really not going mm-hmm. to. We're not capable because they've got their own lives. How does this, this but that's going to happen and force a discussion early on. Mm-hmm. How does the family, how can the family talk about it and try to kind of navigate between the surviving spouse's needs, mm-hmm. which are way more long-term, and the children who want to be trying to help them, and they really do think they are, within five days? Um, uh, 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 let me talk about my case. First of all, um, I... I call myself a first-time menopausal bride because I married my husband at the age of 53, and it was my first marriage, so I don't have children. I have, uh, my husband had two children, and so our situation, um, even though I'm close with them, are, is, is sort of different in the sense that they're not coming in to take care of me. They, I knew they were coming in um, at some point to, to get whatever they wanted, you know, and so I come to this from a very different place and I felt like there were lots of things that I thought they would want of their fathers and so I started making piles in the house of these things and did you do it early on um not well what I did is early on uh, that's a good question Craig um early on the like the when they came in for the funeral I um I found a couple small things that they could put in their suitcases that they could take with them in order to take something of their fathers and so because they said to me, um, we don't have room in the suitcases, we just came in quickly, whatever. So I gave them, because um, we're Jewish, I gave them things like um, uh, my husband's skull ca- skull, yarmulke skull caps that he wore to synagogue, or little things like just, I'm trying to remember what else I gave them, but just small things that they could put in the suitcase. And they were sort of reluctant to take that, but they, I, I just felt that they needed something of their father's. And then what we did was over... Um, a period of time, I knew that they would come back in maybe um, a, f- a few months for what we call the unveiling, when the headst- when the uh, plaque is placed on the grave. So I had some things then, and then they would come back with cars and and things like that. Maybe a total of, it was probably like six to nine months later. So I started really making piles. And what I was really surprised to find is the kids, as we all probably know, the kids don't want everything. <laughs> so stuff that they don't I want put, most things. Yeah, that I put aside and said, oh, this is, you know, from you when you went, you did this with dad or you did this or whatever. And I had lots of piles. I expected them to take it and I have clean areas and whatever and they don't take it all. <laughs> and so then I'm left with disposing of it. But they were also pretty pleased with some of the stuff that I put, uh, with some of the stuff I put away that they had either forgotten about or whatever. So that I think in our case, they walked away happy. And I really strove to, um, to have a good experience because I had had a good experience with this family. And I feel very blessed by that. And I wanted, I so much wanted that going forward, but didn't talk about that. Just tried to do it in my, be- in my behavior and how I treated people. Yeah. And, and, and the good news is when things, even in hindsight, go well, Mm-hmm. We can all handle things going well. Right. Um, my mother always says, if you get a gift, you, it's easy to say thank you. Right. So, but it's hard for us to predict that it's not going to go well. Mm-hmm. So how can we, with the, and, and Jeff, maybe you'll answer, how can we, when, when we're sitting there, and we don't know what's going to happen, the children, this is their first death too often, mm-hmm. 
and it's the spouse's first death, whether it's the, the second spouse or the third spouse. How do we talk to them and help them avoid the problem of fighting over the Tweety Bird um, on the first day from the funeral? What can we do both as, as, as counselors, professionals, and really as family and individuals? Well, th- there's a number of elements. Um, first, I think it's critical that transparency occur because the, the less transparency that occurs, particularly if one sibling is in charge of the estate, there's this assumption he must be doing something wrong. Um, and so I think that's the critical point. And, and underscore, underscore that point because transparency, when the question is asked, what is blank, the fact they may not know the answer does not mean they're not being transparent. It may truthfully mean they don't know the answer, but it's going to be perceived as not transparent. Absolutely. And the key there is to say, I don't have the answer, but I'll get it, and I'll get an answer to you by email or phone call within some period of time. And, and most people will accept that. Um, as, as long as they actually do it. That's the key. <laughs> um, and very often it, it comes back to us as the lawyers of making sure that is done. Um, I think a lot of it is something you've already said is the planning that occurs before death and having enough information to avoid this rampant confusion that goes on uh, about, you know, just all of the various assets and how assets are going to pass and what's intended to occur. Uh, the worst thing you can have is an intestate estate where nobody's quite sure what's supposed to happen and how is it supposed to supposed so, to happen. So and the statistic is 75% of all estates will be intestate. Yeah. And, and the interesting part of that is I find that the, the conflicts are higher the lower the value of the estate. Um, and many of these intestate estates are, you know, a couple hundred thousand. But, you know, they're not huge amounts because the people with larger amounts, not in every case, but in many cases, have done the proper planning in advance. But the conflict is very often, at, you know, for $300,000, you know, a total estate, and the lawyer is going to take a lot of money if they really get into a litigation conflict. But, and, and that's true for $30,000 estates. Oh, yeah. don't, don't assume, and, you know, and when you get a smaller estate, one of the big issues financially will be paying for the funeral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, a lot of these families, particularly with the kids as opposed to the surviving spouse, the kids don't know what's in the estate. You know, Dad never talked to them about it. Uh, doesn't, they don't know what the will says, or at least some of the kids may and some may not. So when, when I'm, And I imagine that's one of the first questions that comes up is, you know, what is there and, and who gets it? One of the things that I tell people is we don't know. We need to figure out where all the pieces are. And I, I, there are two timing issues that I tell people. One is we can't tell you the details because we don't have the details yet. You know, what, what's in the bank account? How much is in the stock account? You know, where things are. We'll get those details and we'll plan on having a follow-up with everybody, whether by conference call or otherwise. The second, and it kind of goes back, Ronnie, to what you were yeah. talking about, is um, – from what I've heard from people in, in, in your side of this uh, business is don't do anything radical for the first six to 12 months. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. Um, Who persuades you not to do that? Who's the one that says to this family, you know, I understand you got to pay your bills and your utilities and you may not have paid them, but that's really all you have to do. How do you, how do you communicate that early and who is the person that communicates that? I will tell you that I got a call one day from um, a gentleman who told me that his brother died and that um, his sister-in-law wanted to sell the house right away and that it seemed to me, he didn't say it all, but there must be some conflict here. And he said, boy, I want to find a third party here to, to, to talk about this. You know, you need to tell her that. And so I thought, okay. And what I came to find, what appeared to me was 
the fact that the wife was considerably younger, they had young children, and there may not have been any other alternative but to sell the house. That I just, I didn't ask a lot of detailed questions. It wasn't my business. They weren't offering that. But I got the feeling that this was a case where really maybe this was, there was no choice. So it's not like, okay, nobody ever sell the house, you know, or there may be, I remember in a support group, um, somebody said one day, I'm leaving Atlanta, I'm moving someplace else, uh, back home where, where that was. And I think that it was just a comfort level that for her to be comfortable and to be happy and to be whatever, she needed to move. And with moving, she needed to, to sell the house, maybe whether it wasn't financial, but just to, you know, really leave this place. So I think it's it's different, but I think if you're planning to stay here, then the concept of not doing anything too big. So, so, you know? when, so when do you start to talk to the family about what assets you do know about and, and, and uh, relieve some of the fears or some of the suspicions? Right. Or I, I, let me tell you my situation, because obviously being a second wife here, the fir- his first wife had died um, some years. He was divorced, but then she died um, from a significant illness um, some years later. So, uh, again, I was kind of like, I have this good relationship. I want everybody to be happy. I don't want to be stressed. I mean, I'm stressed enough. So I, um, uh, when my husband had his heart attack, <coughs> excuse me, and the um, family, uh, the, uh, my, uh, I call them my stepchildren, not legally, they're adults, um, but my stepchildren came in, and I said, you know, they've told us, Dad, is, it's 50-50 for Dad, and... Um, I said, I hope all goes well, but if anything doesn't, I thought that was the time right then and there to take them aside and say, let me tell you what I know so that there would be no crazies, hopefully no crazies later. So I said to them, my understanding is that your father has told you that there's going to be life insurance and it's outside the will and that, you know, if he doesn't make it, I will do everything in my power to get that to you as soon as possible. And I, but I, like Jeff, I wouldn't tell them what I thought the the numbers were. I had never seen the policy. I didn't know if it paid off in full or there was some other caveats, but I just sensed that maybe this isn't a good time to say what the number is and make no promises. Mm -hmm. Because if what I thought was what he told them, everything would be fine, but let's not put any expectations out there. Just let's put an expectation out there that I know about this. I can affect it. I know where the you know, who to call or what the policy, I knew what the policy numbers were and what the thing was, but I didn't know that I had seen the policies per se. So, um, so that's what I did right in the ICU, you know, took them aside. And then when he died, I immediately took them aside and said, again, I will do everything in my power to get to make sure this transfers. And what was the timing of that? So he's passed away. Yeah. When did you have that conversation and say, kids, just understand? I think during um, what we call in Judaism call Shiva week, the week of, of mourning, you know, right after the funeral. I mean, not that second, but, you know, when they were back at the house or sometime within the two or three days that they, you know, first day or two that they stayed um, and that I could get them, uh, you know, aside. And that's what I did. I went to the found a probate attorney. I didn't have one before. Didn't have a state attorney. Um, that um, and I and he said to me, you know, after he looked at the will, he said, you know, what, where are the kids provided for? And I said, ins- insurance policies. Do you have that date? I said yes. And he said, okay. And I made sure that went first. I didn't even think about anything of mine. I mean, dealing with it for about three, four weeks out until I knew that that money had 
passed. And sure enough, the insurance company's like this instantly. <laughs> you know, it's like almost like an ATM. So you're, quite. you're sort of walking a fine line, though, but between you, talking about assets and talking about who gets what and not seeming like that's all you care about is who gets what. what. Right, right. And Jeff, when do you get the call? When do you find out that perhaps a longstanding client or even a new client has passed away and they may need you to help out? You know, it's all over the boards. I will get calls when they're in the ICU saying, we just want you to know dad's not going to make it. He's in ICU. You know, it's going to be a few days, you know, particularly for long-term clients that I have a you know, strong personal relationship with. Um, very often, someone will pass, and it'll be a couple weeks, you know, because the widow is trying to basically move through her own grieving process and isn't willing, willing to move. Um, I, I want to go back to something Ronnie said a minute ago, because I think this is critically important. I firmly agree with her. Don't speculate when you're giving yeah. facts. Because the more you speculate, the more you've made a, a perception that people are saying, well, oh, so I'm going to get $100,000? Well, it turns out it's going to be $50,000 for some reason. Or well, the what insurance lapsed. We see this uh, all the time. Or we'll have, have a divorce that. decree. And the divorce decree very clearly says something. I will maintain a certain amount of insurance. Doesn't mean it happened. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean it happened. Jess, so let's talk in your, in, in your situation where you are a longstanding family and get an early call. How do you approach trying to help this family not stumble along the way and kind of start off when you do it and then how you do it? Well, one of the uh, ticklish things is when you get the call and the person is not yet dead, but it's clear it's coming. Um, trying to sit down and talk to the family about pre-mortem financial decisions they ought to make to make things simpler is just not palatable for the vast majority of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it may make things better, may reduce future conflict, but it, you know, hey, dad's dying, you want to talk about the assets? No. Um, and so, you know. Do you get those questions? Sometimes, uh, but not so much. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes, but not, not all that much. The, the bigger issue typically is going to be once they're gone, uh, we'll get the call. Uh, I have a – there's one misperception that I want to kind of deal with. Georgia probate is probably one of the simplest states in the country from a probate standpoint. Um, you know, once you get your letter testamentary to act on behalf of the state, you know, you don't go back before the judge again unless you've got a major problem. Say that again because we have a lot of people in the military or who are new to Georgia, and the rule that I hear is probate is so difficult, I've got to do this trust, I've got to avoid it at all costs. And George is not hard. No. Focus on what's important to the family. Exactly. And, you know, and I have a, a master sheet that I, that I produce, and I modify it to fit the client, particularly if I've done the original estate planning. And I'll try to meet with them, particularly if the family's in, in from out of town, you know, they're going to be here for a week, they, you know, they want to get some conclusion, if they want that. Uh, and I'll sit down and say, all right, here's kind of a master of what to expect. Now, I can't give you any details because I don't know was the uh, brokerage account in joint name. You know, I don't know if the IRA beneficiaries have changed in some way. But here's generally what you can expect. And that calms a lot of things down very often. Um, and then we say, as we get more information, we will relate it back to you. Now, an email is great for that kind of thing because, you know, you don't have to have lengthy conversations but you can basically continue to inform them about things. A lot of it is expectation. Um, and if you can deal with the expectations and the, and the confusion that they're already feeling and, and kind of placate some of that, it's, it's really helpful. And, and it's, it's a matter of being sensitive and having enough experience to say, I've been through this a few times and I know things that you haven't thought about. Here's a few things you need to start thinking about now. 
You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking today with Ronnie uh, Genzer, president of Bereavement Navigators, and attorney Jeff Scroggins of Scroggins & Company, and we're discussing how to anticipate and avoid issues during the administration stage of an estate. Jeff, you mentioned that you have a list, kind of a thing that you adapt. Is, is part of that list saying kind of the first step, how do you pay your bills, how do you pay for the funeral, or is that something that, that is not a big issue? Um, yes, it's all in there. It's, it's meant to be a practical list. As a, I'm, I'm a tax guy, uh, so there's some tax issues that are in there. But a lot of it's practical. It's, you know, um, is there a personal property disposition list? If so, let's get a copy of it. Um, you know, is there, um, you know, issues about how the assets are going to be held? How are we going to pay the funeral? Most funeral homes are very helpful in saying we'll wait until the insurance money comes in or something else. Um, when we talk about you talk about how the assets are held. Uh, you're talking about probate versus non-probate assets, right? right? right. Why, why don't you talk just for a second about what that means? Well, what you've got you've got two different sets of assets. Um, the will governs your probate assets. The probate assets are the assets that the decedent owned a split second after death. Non-probate assets are assets that automatically pass at the moment of death. Those would be things like life insurance where children are named as beneficiary, like Ronnie was talking exactly. about. Or an IRA that you've named your grandchildren as beneficiaries of. Or jointly held accounts with survivorship, where automatically the survivor has you know ownership and control of that asset. So, and that would include a house that was in joint names. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and the, the, the interesting part is today... You know, I've been practicing for about 36 years. Um, taxes largely drove much of the decision process on how we drafted wills uh, when I first started practicing because the, the, the estate tax was a heavy tax, confiscation tax, on, on, on a lower value. Well, today, someone that dies can pass 5430000 tax-free. If they don't use all of their exemption, their surviving spouse gets the remaining portion as long as they file the estate tax return. So estate taxes are going to hit about 0.2% uh, federal state taxes, 0.2% of all Americans. Effectively nobody. Effectively nobody. Uh, and so what people are really focusing on then is, is saying, all right, how are these assets going to pass? And one of the conflicts that can that can interrupt, I mean, Ronnie, kind of, you know, your situation, um, we see a lot of elderly men getting remarried. There's an interesting California study that said that over 60% of the men that get widowed are in a new relationship within 25 months. Only 20-something percent of the women are. Uh, we men, obviously, are the weaker sex, and we, we, we need the women. Um, but the dyna- take care of me? <laughs> and that's, that's kind of what it is. Um, it was interesting. I was at a uh, client's house not too long ago, and we were sitting there in the kitchen, we were talking. And the wife turns to the husband, we're getting ready to talk about their estate planning, says, oh, did you hear that Marge got first casserole on Jim? And I hear this, first. I go, what are you talking about? She said, well, don't you have the first casserole rule in your church? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, <laughs> Ronnie knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> if you're the first one to the door with a casserole, you got first dibs on the widower. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, it is an interesting dynamic. But what can happen is the second spouse or the third spouse, the generally wives, um, if these assets are, are held where they're getting it, they may decide to disinherit the children from the prior primaries. We see a lot of that going on. It's been on. known to happen. Yeah. And, you know, the husband may have said, well, I know she's going to do the right thing. We had a client years ago that, you know, there were children from prior marriage. She remarried later um, and didn't redo her will, which really created some mess for everybody involved in the family. 
Uh, this, even in situations where the surviving spouse will do the right thing, uh, the kids don't necessarily trust that that will happen. And so the problem arises long before the opportunity to do that right thing occurs. Exactly. And, and you're also going to have the issue that what people anticipated, even the decedent or the estate planning attorney, it didn't happen. You mm-hmm. thought you would change the beneficiary. You didn't. Right. You thought that the right. majority of money was in a bank account that was right. going to go through your estate, but it was jointly held. Right. And, it, and it creates some issues. I want to go back to something you said, Jeff, when you're talking to the family um, the first time. Do you find, particularly with the surviving spouse, that they're even able to hear you? Not soon in most cases. It, it you know, it, it goes back to what Ronnie was saying earlier. The, the quicker the death you know, the more unexpected the death, uh, and the worst of the bunch is suicides. Mm-hmm. Um, the the people just are not able to deal with it on any kind of proximate basis. And I've told many a child or or, or stepchild, back off, mm-hmm. let them have their time to basically get their head together. Excellent. There's nothing absolutely we need to do in most cases, um, and we've got time to basically work this out. And most family members are okay. Uh, with that idea. Uh, they don't understand entirely what mom or stepmom's going through, but particularly, like I say, unexpected death or suicide, it's it's pretty horrific. Um, much easier if someone had Alzheimer's for five years. And, and just to clarify, because I'm not sure most people really understand this, how soon do you have to probate a will? Uh, there is no requirement. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, people think you need to do it right away. You don't need to get to that right away, do you? No. In fact, we just had one where they never probated the assets Dad continued to live in the house after Mom died. Ten years later, uh, the house was in Mom's name. Um, he dies, and that's when we found out that they had never probated his will, and we had to go back ten years before and you know, probate her will in order to pass the assets. As, as lawyers who handle disputes, that's kind of the norm for us, is seeing wills that weren't probated, assets they hadn't realized the, the ownership and its confusion. Tell us, if you can, some red flags for families where – things that that will highlight them here's something i should address so i can avoid a problem or said differently i'm going to see a problem down the road what are what are those red flags for our listeners T- you talking to me and either, yeah, sorry. Oh, either oh. person oh, 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 <laughs> jeff looked at you i know we're on radio <laughs> so <laughs> okay i'm trying to think what i want to say um, um i i just think that in general, I mean, everybody is different again. Um, so everybody has their own situation. But I really just think the whole concept of just not just not waiting until the, you know, to think that you're going to do it all after a death. And that's really why this second service offering, I don't, I mean, I'm not trying to sell here, but this second service offering of planning beforehand or seeing what you should have done from anything from what I call the conversation, meaning what has meaning for you at the end of life? What kind of end of life care do you want? Anything from the emotional things to um, to actual tax. To I would say, che- for for me, it's like check the beneficiaries. You know, if you're a second, um, if you're a second, third wife, whatever, uh, spouse, a partner, um, check the beneficiaries to make sure. I mean, uh, um, that they're all as you think that they are so that you won't be, you know, things like that that are really important that you won't be surprised. Jeff, what are some red flags that you see? Two two issues that I focus on with clients. Um, One, I ask them how the kids get along. Uh, And then I ask how they get along with their in-laws. 
And if I get, well, to, you know, we've got a problem, that's when the red flags start going up. Um, and I will, in many cases, particularly where I think there's a conflict-laden situation, make sure I've got no contest and other provisions in the will that basically inhibits the ability of someone to try to attack whatever the person has done. Mm-hmm. Second, they, one of the biggest points of conflict in for entrepreneurs is you've got a, a family member that's been running this business. Um, there's a child in the business, and there's children outside the business. In some cases, the children outside the business are being supported by the business. Um, but the idea of having those that are inside the business co-owning it with their siblings that are outside the business is an utter disaster in the making. It will not work. Um, I've been practicing, like I said, for 36, 37 years, and it inevitably leads to conflict because you've tied these people together financially, but they're not going to the same place. And as they start trying to basically direct their own financial destinies, increasing conflict occurs to the point that it finally splits things apart. So one of the things, and back to Ronnie's pre-planning, you know, if you're going to pass the business interest to the people inside the business, figure out by insurance or whatever other assets that those assets will pass to those that are outside the business. Um, The other part is, you know, who are the decision makers? Um, Particularly, where we find a lot of it, it's not so much even the executor, it's mom's incapacitated, and what do you mean the second child is going to be the one making medical decisions? How come the oldest isn't doing it? Well, because they're not emotionally capable of pulling the plug. Uh, and I'll ask those questions to people. You know, are they going to be traumatized by it? Um, I had my own sister-in-law not too long ago say, I can't pull my pl- the yeah. plug on, my, on your brother. You're going to have to do it. It's like, well, what am I, the ghoul in the family that knocks off all the family members? I, I think that's the point, yeah. I, I, that is the point. I think we're point. hearing kind of, as we're nearing the end of the show, kind of two takeaways that I've heard from both of you. The first is, after the death of a loved one, be very sensitive to the immediate needs and and do what you can, both as family members and as counselors, uh, to to let them know you have time. You have time to grieve. You have time to work, and 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 address kind of with a triage what's most important. Second thing that I'm hearing really clearly from you is something that I tell everybody, and we only see it at the end. The more you can plan, okay. the more transparent, the more you can set up. Business is an excellent example. Um, the more you can do earlier on, the better it is. And I think we end with that. So let's have each of you tell us, for our listeners, how they can reach you if they have questions or have needs for you. Let's start with Jeff. Uh, you can reach me on my website, www.scroggin.com, scrogginlaw.com. Or you can reach my office at 770-640-1101. Like I said, my office is in the middle of the historic district of Roswell. You can reach me at my website, um, www.bereavementnavigators, all one word, dot com, or my, phone, my office number, 404-843-9460. I want to thank everyone for listening to our tape show, not live today, for everyone to, today for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag, Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Ronnie Gensler, president of Bereavement Navigators, and attorney Jeff Scroggin of Scroggin & Company. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.